Father, I want to thank you for the, the time we have tonight. We thank you for the opportunity once again to learn more about presuppositional apologetics. And we thank you for the example we have in Dr. Bonson, uh, who is home with you. Uh, in heaven. We thank you for his life and example and his mind and the gifts that you gave him to bless the entire church. And we thank you that our church is able to uh, benefit from his hard work and, and sound and clear explanation. We pray that you'd help us to pay attention, to learn well tonight, and that you would use this for the glory of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. I, uh, so we have a lot to cover, and I'm going to talk with rapid rapidity, because uh, there's a lot to get through. I'm actually going to stop tonight at 7 o'clock, come what may. Uh, I've got a son who's singing over at the UCCC, so we're going to go as a family and go listen to him, try to get there on time for that. So um, we, whatever we don't cover tonight, we'll make sure and get next time, uh, but you'll have a little bit of an early night to, I think the Broncos already lost, so yeah. don't worry about that. Um, but whatever you like to do. That item's been dead killed a long time ago. That's right. Um, and just one other note, we have some copies of this, uh, tonight's segment two, printing. Uh, I was dismayed once again to find the printer um, is not cooperating. So we are, Josh, I think, is helping, trying to help us and get some of these copies out to you. Uh, but um, I have one because I need to have one <laughs> to make sure I know where I am. Uh, but uh, we'll, we'll get those out uh, just as quickly as we can. Uh, some of you already have them. Uh, so if you all want to, you know, uh, hunker over the shoulders of other people who have them. If you guys have a couple right in a row, maybe you guys could have one held and then share uh, the others, okay? So uh, we have just one more session for this year. Next Sunday night, December 10th, uh, will be the last session for the year, our final meeting for 2017. And that's when we will, uh, we intend to finish listening to and learning from what's been billed as the great debate, Does God Exist? This debate was held uh, at the UC Irvine in 1985, and it featured two worldviews. It was the Christian worldview, uh, defended by Dr. Greg Bonson, and the non-Christian worldview represented by an atheist, Dr. Gordon Stein. And the contrast, as we've seen, uh, it was stark, especially in the nature of the debate, asking that question and addressing that question, does God exist? In the first segment that we heard uh, last time, each man presented his worldview in an opening statement, and then each one defended his worldview against his opponent's cross-examination, and then each man offered a formal uh, rebuttal or refutation of his opponent's arguments. And what we heard uh, in Dr. Ponson was the presuppositional apologetic in action. Uh, that's what we're hearing here is this, uh, all that we've been talking about, we're hearing it actually fleshed out. So Dr. Bonson, as we've heard, has already exposed his opponent's arbitrariness. He's exposed his use of prejudicial reasoning, his biases. Uh, and he's only briefly mentioned, actually, the transcendental argument for God's existence, that the, the proof of God is in the impossibility of the contrary. So he's only, he's only briefly mentioned that, hasn't even exposed it. Uh, but Dr. Stein has already lost the debate uh, right from the very beginning, right in the way uh, Dr. Bonson framed the argument. So uh, we, could, we could button it up and say, okay, all done, task complete. No, we want to still uh, learn. There's a lot more to learn. 
Last time we heard Dr. Bunsen begin by framing the argument. And he was basically saying, he's basically entering into the argument, framing it in his opening statement by saying this, I'm not in this to defend religion in general uh, or general theism. He's telling Dr. Stein, I cannot defend those worldviews with which I fundamentally disagree. Uh, I am, by God's grace, a Christian, and I will therefore defend, and only defend, Christian theism. So right off the bat, Dr. Bonson has been honest about his presuppositions. He has been straightforward as, about his worldview. And I just want to commend to you that in your conversations with others, you should do the very same thing. Be upfront about who you are, about what defines you, about uh, your presuppositions, your worldview. Um, and then that will uh, clarify for the person you're talking to where you're coming from. Be straightforward about these issues. Don't try to bring it in the back door. Uh, Dr. Bonson also wanted to make it clear from the outset uh, that he intended to debate philosophical systems or worldviews and not necessarily the people who adhere to or profess those systems. So that avoids the tendency for this debate to become uh, mired in subjective personal issues. So you know, when we personalize the issue, whether it's negatively to say, hey, all those atheists out there, they're the cause of you know, in Stalin's murder, and Mao's murder, and in China, and Russia, we can point to those inconsistencies or objectionable behavior. They can do the same thing right back to us, accusing us of oh, all those Christians and the Crusades and everything else. So we want to avoid that, but also positively, you know, pointing out our subjective feelings of peace. You know, atheists will say the same thing. I feel such a, such a sense of freedom ever since I've embraced atheism. I've defined God out of my universe. Now, I actually take responsibility for my life and actions, and, and you, you blame it all on a God. So that, that is never going to go anywhere. That's tenuous uh, at best, and the consequences are just resulting in, in chasing distracting rabbit trails. Okay, So our concern is for the objective merits of the case and not the subjective cases of personal experience uh, going out through history and saying, good guy, bad guy, good guy, bad guy, your system, my system all that kind of thing. Now, after, um, after Bonson defined the terms and the parameters of the debate in his opening statement, he then stated clearly that the case for the existence of God that he was going to make would involve three areas of thought. Number one, the nature of the evidence. Um, how, what kind of evidence are we going to accept and refuse when we're trying to prove the existence of God? What's, what's acceptable? What's admissible here? Uh, secondly, the presuppositional conflict of worldviews. So he trying to expose, which he's been very transparent about his own worldview, but then trying to expose Dr. Stein's worldview, which he's not very transparent about. Uh, he tries to pretend he's neutral. He tries to pretend he's just chasing, you know, trying to be consistent with laws of logic and just trying to uh, chase uh, accurate science, but actually he's not neutral or objective at all. The third thing, uh, third area of thought is the transcendental argument for God's existence. In tonight's segment, we're going to hear Dr. Bonson focus attention on the first point, which is on the nature of evidence. Specifically, you hear him talking a lot about the laws of logic. First, uh, before outlining his case for God's existence, Dr. Bonson used some time on the clock 
uh, you may remember this, to concede to his opponent, quote, all issues pertaining to the control of ovarian maturation in Japanese quail, which is the subject of uh, Dr. Stein's doctoral dissertation, 1974, Ohio State. <laughs> remember him doing that? So apart from scoring a couple of laughs from us in the audience, anybody know why it was important to make that point? Yeah, Gary. I think that he was trying to show that this man is no expert in metaphysical matters. He's a biologist. You, he used to be a biologist. You, you got it. That's very succinctly and accurately stated. He, he has departed from his, his ex, area of expertise, and he's gotten into something he's really out of his depth in. Okay? Anybody know what kind of a logical fallacy that Dr. Bonson committed there? And it was an intentional commitment of a fallacy? Ad hominem. Ad hominem. Yeah, what is that? It's an attack on a person. Attack on a person. It's so basically, there are a whole list of ad hominem attacks, different ways you can kind of, uh, you know, attack your opponent's character or question his motives or whatever. But Dr. Bonson intentionally committed that fallacy. He later, uh, I've, I've listened to him later explaining or commenting on this debate, and he said that, no, I was purposeful uh, in doing that. If you, if you try to be a, a purist with regard to logical rules and formal debate, he said that that's not, that's not the way we communicate with one another, and it's important to, to basically, he didn't put it this way, but score that point. Anybody know why it's sometimes important to do that? Because we're not just logical beings, we also have emotions and we think in terms of both, both important parts of how God made us. Okay, not just logical beings, that's true. Uh, there's more to us, but I wouldn't say that anything he was doing was outside of logic, but yes, Wayne. Uh, bringing judgment in, trying, trying to provoke people to judge not only the facts, but the foundation or the perspective from which they're being presented. Good, yeah, good, excellent. So that's exactly right. He's trying to get the audience and all of us, and we should be doing this as well, but to consider why would Dr. Stein leave biology and enter into a campaign for atheism? Why would he, why would he become an evangelist for atheism? It's because he's got an ax to grind. Because he's got something, a chip on his shoulder. So Dr. Bonson was basically, right at the start of the debate, putting Dr. Stein on notice, and he did it in a very uh, polite way, a very subtle way, but he's left his field of expertise in order to come campaign for atheism. He didn't presume to understand maybe why Dr. Stein has become uh, an atheist evangelist. He just made the comment, then let it hang there. So as Dr. Bonson knows, and as we all know from Romans 1.18, Dr. Stein has an ax to grind. He is suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Um, and to do so, Dr. Stein, like every unbeliever, including the unbelievers that you and I come into contact with, every unbeliever comes into the argument with a chip on his shoulder and a hidden motive of covering his sin, even if it means... I will do so by appealing to irrationality, even if I have to um, 
you know, wink, wink, we're going to let this rule slide and I'm going to suppress this truth that I've seen. So as we've seen uh, already in the debate, there's nothing, nothing about the control of ovarian maturation in Japanese quail that is going to help Dr. Stein make the case against the existence of God. Not one thing. Quite the contrary. What can be known about God is plain to him because God has shown it to Dr. Stein in the study of the ovarian maturation of Japanese quail because God designed the Japanese quail. <laughs> so just because Gordon Stein has doctor in front of his name, no one should feel intimidated about his learning, his background, his area of expertise when dealing with these spiritual issues because Dr. Stein is lost. And by God's grace, we have been saved. We have our eyes open to truth. We can understand and comprehend and apprehend the things that God has revealed to us. He is way out of his depth when it comes to spiritual matters. We're not. This is where we live. So we need to stand and take our stand in the superior position. This is how God, this is what God has brought us into by his grace. So I just want you to know, like Dr. Bonson, I mean, obviously he's an expert. He studied philosophy. This is his life's work and pursuit. We're not, we're not like Dr. Bonson, okay? But you also are able to show your unbelieving friend the presuppositional nature of the conflict between his worldview and your worldview. Uh, the truth. You're able to show how his worldview fails to provide the preconditions of intelligibility. You are able to argue for the existence of the true and living God by the impossibility of the contrary. Um, it's impossible for God not to exist and explain the world around us, that is. Um, you're able to show how the unbeliever is borrowing from your worldview in order to, uh, to carry on his campaign of rebellion against God. You, you can do all of this. You can do all the things we're talking about uh, and call that unbeliever to repentance and then become God's instrument of bringing eternal salvation to that person through faith in Jesus Christ. So I just want to encourage you, even so some of this language is uh, a little unfamiliar to us, keep on learning. Be humble, be bold, be obedient, and talk with that unbeliever. Um, you actually are a much more intimidating uh, person to the unbeliever than they really are to you. It's kind of like I try to tell my, my wife every time she sees a spider, honey, you, you outweigh this spider. Even at your small size, you outweigh that spider? You are more intimidating than that spider? Just step on it. <laughs> after all my after all my instruction, she's still scared. So. Okay. After hearing Dr. Bonson's opening statement, then hearing Dr. Stein's opening statement, we all knew Dr. Stein was sunk, um, and that became even more painfully apparent in the cross examination. We're going to continue listening. We're entering into sec uh, segment two of the debate. It's the same pattern but shortened times. Um, we ended last time with the rebuttal section, and we only listened to Dr. Bonson's rebuttal. We didn't listen to Dr. Stein's rebuttal. So I'm not sure if any of you took time to listen or read the transcript. But I want to make an important note uh, about Dr. Stein's rebuttal just to, uh, to bring out some of his worldview that's going to be addressed in this segment. So you're not confused. I just don't want you to be confused as we go through this. So in trying to summarize a point that he was making uh, in refuting Dr. Bonson's worldview, here's what Dr. Stein said. Here's what he said, quote, if I say every human being had a mother, that's a valid question. But if I ask, who is the mother of the human race? 
That is a non-valid question because the human race did not have a mother. What do you do? Just defined that question out of the debate, didn't he? Mm -hmm. Can he do that fairly? No. Then he goes on. I can ask, what is the cause of this planet exploding? But to ask what is the cause of the universe is to ask an invalid question. And to offer the answer as God is to offer an invalid answer to an invalid question. So he actually said that. <laughs> and that's, you know, you appreciate the, you know, how all that was exposed because that is, most unbelievers, they're not maybe going to say that kind of thing, but that's how they think. They think, um, we're going to play the rules according to my unbelieving game. You know, I'm just going to set all the rules and you need to, you need to prove your case to me. Now, the truth is, yes, you need to demonstrate your case from Scripture. You need to demonstrate defend the Christian worldview. Yeah, that's true. That unbeliever has to defend his position, too. He's not off the hook. His position, even though it is the predominant and assumed position all through our culture, um, it doesn't matter. He still needs to prove his point. He cannot get away with not arguing anything before you. <coughs> because there will come a day when he's going to stand before God, and then he's going to have to explain so what Dr. Stein just revealed is an unargued philosophical bias. He's saying, he's, he's saying that asking what was the cause of the universe is to ask an invalid question. That, that's, his, that's his unargued bias. He has arbitrarily rejected any investigation into the question of origins because he just doesn't believe the universe has a non-materialist cause. <coughs> he just rejects the question as invalid, offers no argument to defend it, and Dr. Bonson is going to reference that part of his rebuttal uh, so I just don't want you to be confused about that. So listen out for standard atheistic arguments. I'm going to play Dr. Stein on 1.5 speed so we can get through it. Um, you'll hear it. You'll understand. Um, so we're going to talk about the problem of evil. He's going to raise the problem of evil. Uh, he's going to raise the issue of free will, the so-called lack of evidence, you know, no miracles. Hey, God didn't come down and do a you know, giant 50-foot Jesus in front of me, so therefore I don't believe. Or lack of justice, lack of consensus, conceptions of religion, all that stuff. Just standard atheistic fare, all easily refutable. Okay? So if you got, uh, hopefully some of you have some of these transcripts. We'll go ahead and start. Ready? Now, we think it would be logically wrong to say that if all of the proofs fail for the existence of God, one is justified in saying that there is no God. That's, there's a uh, logical fallacy argument about having a ground or something like that to say that you accept something just because only evidence fails. However, we have two other factors here. So we have a long period of time in which all these proofs of being confessed fail. That's some evidence about probability of there being a proof that someone will come up with that will succeed, being pretty unlikely. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> in addition, we have a number of things which I wouldn't call Sorry. proofs, but I would call evidence, which make the existence of God even more improbable. Yeah. yeah. One of them is the problem of evil. If an all good God exists, why is there evil in the world? We're told with God that all things are possible. If all things are possible, it would be possible for him to create a world in which the vast mass of suffering that is morally pointless, such as the pain and misery of animals, the cancer and blindness of little children, the humiliations of senility and insanity were avoided. We're in the fourth These paragraph. are the inflictions of the creator himself, or else we have a God that is omnipotent. If you admit that, then you deny his goodness. If you say that he would not have done otherwise, you deny with him things that are possible, all things that are possible. 
So the atheist can present several arguments which sort of increase the probability that there isn't a God. They're not proofs, as I said. One of them would be the problem of evil. The idea is that the presence of evil is incompatible with all good, all knowing, and all powerful God, as Dr. Bonson suggested he believes in. Now, he could come up with a statement that injustice in this world may well be corrected in the next world, but that would be something that he would make without any evidence whatsoever. So, again, wishful thinking. He can also say that get out of his mind by saying that God is not all powerful, that some things, some evil things are done without his permission, so to speak. In which case, his statement that he believes in an omnipotent God is falsified. He can also say that the old argument about free will, which is basically a morass into which he may fall he wishes, will not do. To say that God gave man free will and therefore he can choose between evil and good is to imply, imply that God was unable to make a man who could examine both sides and always choose the good. That, in other words, he's limited. The only way he can do it is to let man completely choose for himself, as if that would take something away from a man who could examine both sides and still have the guidance within himself to always choose the good. Now, there's no obvious physical evidence of a God. If God wanted man to believe in him, man or woman, people, he could only have to do is put in an appearance before a group of people, especially a group of atheists. In fact, they invite him to their views to put in an appearance. And that way, anyone would believe in him except a fool. Well, the Christian says that this may sound logical to you, but it doesn't to God. God evidently wants man to believe on faith without adequate evidence. Well, if he, did, if he does, then why did he give man the power of reason? And why did he give man more reason than any other animal has? If only living things on the earth were created by a God, he was a loving God who made man in his own image. How do you explain the fact that he must have created the tapeworm, the malaria parasite, tetanus germs, polio, ticks, mosquitoes, cockroaches, and fleas? Now surely the dog has not suffered from original sin and, and, and needs to be infected with fleas so that he can get the dog in heaven which will be better than his present life. <laughs> The standard answer of theists to this kind of question is things have to be better after death. You know, we have these things on earth, it's a veil of tears, so to speak. It doesn't make much sense. I mean, any god that would punish a man for what his ancestors did is not a very moral god. I'm talking about original sin now, and I'm very dark and There are many instances on the earth in which no distinction seems to be made between the innocent and the guilty, between the Christian and the non-believer, for example, in natural disasters like earthquake or fire. It kills Christians, it kills babies, it kills animals, it kills non-Christians. You certainly can't say that these people were punished in some way for something that they did. It also demolishes churches and hospitals without distinction. Is this, isn't this evidence that at the very least whatever force there is controlling these things doesn't care if people are Christians or not? Or whether they're innocent or not? If there's only one God and he cares at all about his worship, why are there so many different conceptions of God and so many different religions? They're all claiming to be the one true religion. Does this mean that they're all mistaken? Does it mean that one is correct and all the others are mistaken? There's an old joke about an atheist in which he said to a believer, you know, you believe that 99 of the 100 gods are false. I just go one step further and say that the 100 one is also false. So I'm sure that Dr. Barson, in fact, he even agreed that he would help me refute any other gods but the Christian God. If Christianity is the one true religion, why are so many people who sincerely believe in it found in prison slums and an organized crime? I'm not saying that all people there are Christians. I'm not saying that all people who organized crime are Christians either. But evidently, if Christianity led to an elevation of moral standards, which we haven't gotten into yet about morality, but I'm going to jump around here a little bit, Christians would be expected to be highly moral. Not less moral. 
by studies of the religious beliefs of prisoners have shown that almost a one devout Christians, the number of atheists is less than 1%. And these statistics were in fact so disturbing to the people who conducted them that they stopped collecting them recently. Can't argue with the facts Any system which seems to fail in its application as frequently as Christianity does is not a very good or practical system for mankind to follow. I don't want to get into a real discussion of Christianity, except that Dr. Bunsen insists that the Christian God and Jesus and the other evidences that come from the Christian God, uh, concomitants with them, are true and the others are not. What are we left with in this exercise? Well, we can see that we can't prove the existence of God by any rational or logical process, right? and Dr. Bunsen is not over this anymore. We have a factual issue here. Again, as I said, because the proofs fail, it doesn't mean that the existence is disproved, but I think it certainly is unproved. We can, as I will say in my closing statement, this does not leave us in a bleak and a horrible world. There are many, many things that the atheist does with his life which make this world a nice place and enable him to get to the solving of the problems of this world instead of hoping for pie in the sky, which does not seem to be very probable. Thank you, Dr. Stein. Dr. Bonson, please have your 10 minutes open statement. Okay, um, as you're listening to those different atheistic arguments against uh, Christian theism, uh, it was your mind kind of scrolling through some different answers to that? Okay, any, anybody, uh, any, any of them particularly perplexing to you? Uh, challenges to the Christian faith? Here's one that's really difficult, I'd say, to answer as a Christian, is when atheists or just non-Christians point out the, what they can point to is the, <coughs> say your gospel is transformational, why are there so few people transformed by it? Mm -hmm. They point to professing Christians, and that's a difficult one to, to try to get yourself out of, because, I mean, we have an answer for that, it just involves a whole lot more complexity, but you just, you just wish that you could point to more instances of transforming power in the gospel in people's actual lives. Um, and that's, that really is a, uh, just a reminder to us that our witness really, really matters. It's not just what we say we believe, it's what we believe and what we practice. Yeah, Sherry? That was Gandhi's point. Yeah, I know. I've heard that a number of times. I think... Um, bring that up. Yeah, I think it was Dr. John Stott that said, you know, the, the, um, the one... Uh, way to refute Christianity is to look at believers who profess to follow it and actually are, give a lie to it. And he said the irrefutable case for Christianity is Christ. And I think that's really important for us to remember too. That we don't want to get caught up in, in looking at all the uh, imperfect examples. Except we just want to point people to one example because Christ is Christianity. You know, He is it. We just need to we just need to follow him and and not um, you know just be humble and bold in our in our witness. Very quickly, Brett. Yeah, just one. You said uh, things we have trouble with. One of our, I've always had a little bit of trouble with um, is just why did God create malaria, parasite, tetanus germs, polio, mm -hmm. ticks, mosquitoes, cockroaches? Yeah, that's good. And and again, getting into the Christian worldview. Uh, there is an adequate answer for that, looking back at Christian theology, which goes back to creation and then the fall. You know, you, you talk about the fall. 
and all that comes out of that. But it is it is difficult. The you know when you when you personalize and put a face on the problem of evil, don't don't just speak in terms of malaria, but or or you know, but speak in terms of this little girl who was just terribly treated or diseased or whatever as a result of somebody else's sin. That's that's hard. How does a good God uh, tolerate that? So those are difficult things, but there are answers in Christian theology. And the answer is this, that God, being all-powerful, uh, omniscient, uh, all-seeing, all-knowing, he has a good and wise reason for decreeing and then allowing the evil that occurs. Mm -hmm. So it really is the problem of evil is, an e is a problem that <coughs> calls for us to trust in the God of the Bible. And that's what an atheist or, or a non-Christian simply will not do. Okay, before we listen to Dr. Bonson, just a brief note. He's going to mention a couple of terms, philosophical terms, a priori knowledge and a posteriori, posteriori knowledge or reasoning. Uh, that which is known a priori is that which is known independently of any particular experience. So a priori would be all bachelors are unmarried persons. That's just, no, you don't have to go and check every single, you a bachelor? Okay, are you married or not? You know, you don't have to do that around the whole world before you prove, oh, all bachelors are, it's just known by definition. That's known a priori. There are many things that we operate with in knowledge that we have is unknown a priori. There are also, a lot of our knowledge that comes by experience. That's a posteriori, is that which is known or derived from experience. So he's going to mention those terms. Don't be uh, confused by them. We'll listen to him in normal speech. Why are the laws of logic, Dr. Stein, and how are they justified? 
And you still have to answer that question. From a materialist standpoint, from a Christian standpoint, we have an answer, obviously, that reflects the thinking of God. They are, if you will, a reflection of the way God thinks and expects us to think. But if you don't take that approach and want to justify the laws of logic in some a priori fashion that is apart from experience, sometimes that suggests when he says these things are self-verified, then we can ask why the laws of logic are universal, unchanging, and invariant truths. Why they, in fact, apply repeatedly in the realm of contingent experience. Dr. Stein told you, well, we use the laws of logic because we can make accurate predictions using them. Well, as a matter of fact, that doesn't come anywhere close to discussing the vast majority of the laws of logic. That isn't the way they are proven. It's very difficult to conduct experiments on the laws of logic of that sort. They are more conceptual in nature rather than empirical or predicting certain outcomes in empirical experience. But even if you want to try to justify all of them in that way, we have to ask why is it that they apply repeatedly in a contingent realm of experience? Why in a world that is random, not subject to personal order, as I believe Christian God, why is it that the laws of logic continue to have that success generating feature about them? Why should they be assumed to have anything to do with the realm of history? Why should reasoning about history or science or empirical experience have these laws of thought imposed upon it? Uh, once again, we have to come back to this really uh, unacceptable idea that they're conventional. If they are conventional, then of course there ought to be just numerous approaches to scholarship everywhere, different approaches to history, to science, and so forth, because people just adopt different laws of logic. That just isn't the way scholarship proceeds. And if anybody thinks that is adequate, they just need to go to the library and read a bit more. The laws of logic are not treated as conventions. To say that they are merely conventions is simply to say, I haven't got an answer. Now, if you want to justify logical truths along a posteriori lines, that is, rather than arguing that they're self-evident, but uh, rather arguing that there's evidence for them that we can find in experience or by observation, used, by the way, by John Stuart Mill, um, people will say we gain confidence in the laws of logic through repeated experience, and that experience is generalized. That in um, some weaker moments, I think Dr. Stein was trying to say that. Of course, some of the suggested logical proofs, it turns out, are so complex or so unusual that it's difficult to believe anyone has perceived their instances in experience. But even if we restrict our attention to the other, more simple laws of logic, it should be seen that if their truth cannot be decided independently of experience, then they actually become contingent. That is, if people cannot justify the laws of logic independent of experience, then you can only say they apply as far as I know in the past experience that I've had. They are contingent, they lose their necessity, universality, and invariance. Why should a law of logic, which is verified in one domain of experience, by the way, be taken as true for unexperienced domains as well? Why should we universalize and generalize about the laws of logic, especially in a materialistic universe, not subject to the control of a personal God? Now, it turns out that the a priori and the a posteriori lines of justification for logical truths are unconvincing, as I'm suggesting briefly they both are, perhaps we could say they are linguistic conventions about certain symbols. Uh, certain philosophers have suggested that. 
the laws of logic would not be taken as inexorably dictated, but rather we impose them, we impose the necessity on our language. They become, therefore, somewhat like rules of grammar. And as John Dewey pointed out so, uh, you know, so persuasively earlier in the century, the laws of grammar, you see, are just culturally relative. If the laws of logic are like grammar, then the laws of logic are culturally relative too. <coughs> Why then are not contradictory systems deemed equally rational? If the laws of logic can be made culturally relative, then we can win the debate by simply stipulating the law of logic that says anybody who argues in this way has uh, gotten tautology on his hands, and therefore it's true. Why are arbitrary conventions like the logical truth so useful if they're only conventional? Why are they so useful in dealing with problems in the world of experience? Is that we must ask whether the atheist has a rational basis for his claims. Atheists love to talk about laws of science, laws of logic. They speak as though there are certain moral absolutes for which Christians were just a few minutes ago being indicted because they didn't live up to them. But who is the atheist to tell us about laws? In a materialist universe, there are no laws, much less laws of morality that anybody has to live up to. When we consider that the lectures and essays that are written by logicians and others are not likely filled with just uninterrupted series of tautologies, we can examine those propositions which logicians are most concerned to convey. For instance, logicians will say things like a proposition is the opposite truth value from its negation. Now, when we look at those kind of propositions, we have to ask the general question, what type of evidence do people have for that kind of teaching? Is it the same sort of evidence that's utilized by the biologist, by the mathematician, the lawyer, the mechanic, by your beautician? What is it that justifies the law of logic, or even believes that there is such a thing? What is a law of logic, after all? There's no agreement on that question. If we had universal agreement, perhaps it would be silly to ask the question. It's been suggested to you that it's absurd to ask these sorts of things, although the um, analogy that was used by Dr. Stein about the absurdity of asking about the cause of the world is not at all relevant, because that isn't what my argument is. By the way, that's not absurd to ask that question either. It may be unnecessary to ask it if you're an atheist, but it's certainly not absurd to ask it. But it isn't absurd to ask the question that I'm asking about logic. You see, logicians are having a very real difficulty deciding on the nature of their claims. Anybody who reads in the philosophy of logic must be impressed with that today. Some say that the laws of logic are inferences comprised of judgments made up of concepts. Others say that they are arguments comprised of propositions made up of terms. Others say they are proof comprised of sentences made up of names. Others can simply say they are electrochemical processes in the brain. In the end, what you think the laws of logic are will determine the nature of evidence that you will suggest for them. Now, in an atheist universe, where are the laws of logic? How can they be universal, abstract, invariant? And how does an atheist justify the use of them? Are they merely conventions imposed on our experience, or are they something that reflect absolute truth? 
Dr. Stein tonight has wanted to use the laws of logic. I want to suggest to you one more time that Dr. Stein is so doing, is borrowing my worldview. He's using the Christian approach to the world so that there can be such laws of logic, scientific inference, or what have you. But then he wants to deny the very foundation of it. Okay, um, I, I understand that you may not have followed all of that, um, that there may be some terms in there that you're not familiar with, but it's, he really did a good job of, of giving you a term, but then coming right, right after that and giving an explanation of it. Um, and the issue is, you know, Dr. Stein is going to say that laws of logic are conventional, and what he means by that is they are social conventions. Uh, anybody in a society, they get together and they kind of agree upon the, okay, so when I say black, I'm referring to this color, and black cannot be both black and white at the same time, so we're going to agree that A cannot be both A and not A, or P and not P at the same time in the same relationship in the same instance. Um, you know, he's saying that's what Dr. Stein wants us to believe, that you would be so thoughtful in your society that you would get together and have these conventions. Conventions grew over time and all that, and we just kind of have come to accept it as the way we communicate. So um, if, if they are conventions, if the laws of logic are just you know, things that we kind of came up with as human beings, then really they aren't universal. They're not binding. They're not absolute. You could have different logic going on in different societies, and we would all be completely and utterly confused. We couldn't even have conversations with each other. We wouldn't even do science in the same way. Nothing would be the same. And so Dr. Bonson's saying, look, laws of logic, we have, we have recognized that they are universal. They're abstract. That is, they're not concrete. You don't trip over a law of logic, you know, sitting on the floor. Uh, it's not a concrete material substance. And they're invariant. That is to say that they don't change. They're, they are always the same every time you come to it. Um, the law of non-contradiction is always going to be there, no matter what you believe about it. Just like the world of numbers. We've talked about that a little bit. Um, if I ask you to tell me, if I write a number five on the board, is that a number five? Is that the number five? And you would say, well, yeah, it's the symbol. Uh, because if you say, yeah, it's the number five, if I erase it, then I say, well, I've just erased five out of existence. No, it's just the symbol of a five. It's the, it's the uh, marks of that marker going up and giving a symbol, just like this is a symbol of the number five, but it's not the number five. So there isn't, there's this, this universal, abstract, not concrete, but abstract, an invariant number that exists, no matter what you think about it, no matter who denies it, no matter who affirms it. It all will always be there. Nope. Same thing. What's that? No, we didn't get together and have a conference. Didn't get together and have a conference? It's not a convention of society. We didn't all agree upon it. It just is. And we accept it. And we actually order our lives based on it. We stand on the principles of mathematics when you go to the grocery store, when you live your life, or when you put gas in your car. This is the way we live. So that's what uh, Dr. Bonson is saying. Show me in an atheist universe, not, uh, which is a completely materialistic universe, which all that exists is matter, and all that can be known is what we observe in nature. Tell me how that can explain universals, things that are abstract, things that are invariant and never change. He's saying you cannot. That's what he keeps pressing him on. So. 
Um, Dr. Bonson actually used in his, his first opening statement from segment one, he used a number of examples like that, and you should use these too. Um, he talked about barometric pressure, quasars, gravitational attraction, elasticity, radioactivity, natural laws, names, grammar, numbers, uh, past events, categories, future contingencies, laws of thought, laws of logic, political <laughs> obligations, individual in identity over time, causation, memories, dreams, even love or beauty. Uh, all those things cannot be explained from a materialist point of view. Where do they come from? How do we, they, they can be, some of these things like barometric pressure, you can talk about with, in terms of uh, materialist forces and everything, but all these things are not proven, the existence of them is not proven in exactly the same way. You have to use the laws of inference and laws of logic. So all of that um, is to go back to one of his main points, which is the nature of evidence, that we're not going to prove the existence of God according to your empirical, uh, atheistic, secular reasoning and scientific method. That's, it's, it's complete, God's existence is completely outside the realm of the scientific method, just like origins are, just like creation. Okay, does that make sense? Um, so why do you think that Dr. Monson chose to to put his to needle this issue and put his finger on this issue of the laws of logic with Dr. Stein. Yes, uh, because he's pointing out the lack of foundation in the other argument. I mean, even I love his dry sense of humor. Right, even in the middle of the discussion, he takes the sidebar of you know, in the atheist worldview, you don't even have to worry about why the world even exists. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. You're you're picking up on that exactly. He does have a very dry sense of humor, and, uh, and uh, after after you listen to it a couple of times, you start to pick up like, wow, he's really clever. <laughs> I'm glad I'm on his side, and he's on my side, you know. Um, but uh, he, you know, Dr. Stein, like many atheists, um, prides himself in being logical, and he he says you Christians are not logical. So I'm just trying to stand with logic, you know. And so he's going he's gonna to take that issue and expose, no, he's not logical at all. He can't even provide a reason for logic in his worldview. Okay? So um, from grade school, our kids are taught to think about evolution, for example, as a, as a settled science. It's a matter of fact. It's no longer presented as a theory. It is a settled fact, don't you know? And uh, unbelievers are just utterly ignorant in how illogical, irrational their thinking really is. They believe and they live without any justification and without any really self-reflection on the irrationality of their worldview. And so you just need to understand, when we're facing any unbeliever, even ones with letters, learned letters before their name, um, they, uh, it's a paper tiger. Don't be afraid of it. Step into it and face, face your opponent and just ask simple questions. Just ask simple questions. How do you explain in your worldview um, the existence of love, the existence of beauty, the existence of laws, rules? Are there universals, absolutes? Uh, just, just needle them, okay? Any, uh, <laughs> let's, let's move on to the cross-examinations. Uh, Dr. Stein is gonna examine Dr. Bonson. I'm going to play this a little bit faster. Uh, the whole thing I'm going to play a little bit faster, okay? So follow. <laughs> 
Dr. Bronson. Thank you. 
inside the garage were the validity inside the garage were undermined by him when he contended that we have no rational basis for expecting the future to be like the past or the world to be for there to be types of events so that one event happening can be um, understood as a type of event. So where it's seen happening somewhere else, the same consequence can be expected from similar causation. Hume said we had no rational basis for that. Yeah, I'm trying to set up the question. Hume suggested that there was no rational basis for expecting the future to be like the past, in which case science is based simply on convention, or if you will, habits of thought. Do you agree with him? No, on this issue I don't. Do you now have an answer for him? Stein that we didn't listen to last time, but it's in your notes if you'd like to read it. Uh, he's, Zen cones, Zen Buddhism, I'm not familiar with it, but it, evidently it's like the, those, all those questions about what is the sound of one hand clapping. It just, it's, it's like logical absurdities, and he's trying to say it's not absurd, but it's just extra logical. And so he's making these different categories because Dr. Stein wants to demonstrate with, the, with this evidence from Zen Buddhist communities and the cones that um, there's an instance of how different kinds of logic is used in different kinds of communities and how that proves that the laws of logic are based on communal, communal social consensus and not, uh, not necessitate properties of being absolute, invariant, or universal. So that's what Dr. Stein is trying to do. And Bonson was about to conduct an internal critique of that system, but first he had to determine whether or not Dr. Stein, Dr. Stein viewed that so-called logic as valid or absurd, uh, allowable or disallowable in his own worldview. And so Dr. Stein 
maneuvered around that, like trying to tack Jello to the wall. You know, he's just he's very slippery on that point. Okay. Any uh, any questions about that uh, about that section before we listen to the final thing, the rebuttals? Travis, I thought you said you had It's 7 o'clock. We got 7 billion. Not that I'm not enjoying this. Yeah, yeah. We'll just, it's, it's real quick, because um, okay. I drive fast, so. <laughs> yes, please. No, you don't know. Is that logical to drive fast? You know what it is. Um, I drive fast according to the speed limit. Uh, you know, within. Is that logical? It's logical to open the Thanks. 
rationally all the time, whether he can be irrational. How do we know when he's being irrational? Is it possible for him to be irrational? I want to know what kind of logic God uses. Does he use the kind of logic that we can demonstrate, that we can test in the same way that we use the logic that we're talking about in science? If so, should it be impossible for God to contradict himself in any way? Can he make a, a so-and-so thing he can't lift it? Is that a logical impossibility? Is God limited by that kind of thing? Can God make a square circle? I mean, these are little logical games that we play that don't really ask important questions, but they have a, a reflection on some kind of a problem that he is having with this concept of God. And if God can do anything, and he's omnipotent and omniscient and omnipotent, can he do those two things I said, or yes? And if he does, what kind of logic is he using? The logic of self-contradiction? Until we have some answers to these questions, I don't think we've got very much meaningful to Dr. Bonson in the first place about any issue. He certainly doesn't apply logic to the proofs of the existence of God that have been offered by philosophers. What do you hear him doing in that section? Completely avoiding answering anything that's been brought up. Okay, yeah, so he's avoiding he's avoiding the questions that have been posed to him, and they are clear questions. Um, it's not just us as Christians that recognize them as clear questions, but and I think anybody can understand he's been asked straightforward questions, and he's just not answering them. Um, you know, maybe he doesn't have an answer. Maybe he's, uh, you know, his pride is blinding him to the answers or whatever the case. But he's just avoiding answering the questions. And instead, he's trying to shift the nature of the debate back to where he's comfortable, which is, I want you to tell me how God made that cow. You know, like, like that's going to actually help. Is that actually going to help get to the... Answer to the question: Does God exist? If you, if he, can, if if you can understand how God made the cow, does that help prove God's existence? No. 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 It just means everything he did can be fully explained and rationalized by you, and therefore he's not that great of a God, is he? So Dr. Stein expects God, you're, the God you're purporting to believe, to be brought down to less than you, less than him. So who's God in this equation? Dr. Stein is. And this is the way unbelievers reason and argue with you. They are very slippery. And think about yourself. Think about yourself when you're caught um, in some kind of a, uh, a sin, an error. And think about when your pride wells up and you just want to argue your way around it. You don't want to be caught. You don't want to, so you kind of, you know, you skirt the issue, you avoid the question, you blame shift, you try to say your opponent, like your spouse, hasn't been clear enough. That's the problem. Well, if you would just clarify, I would, you know, I'm a reasonable man, you know, of course, it's your problem, it's your fault. It's the same thing we do, isn't it? So we don't want to be too hard on Dr. Stein in the sense that we understand He's reasoning out of a sinful heart. He doesn't want to be caught. So he tries to shift this whole argument into territory where he's comfortable and make Dr. Bonson answer his questions, not the other way around. You're going to face this all the time. Okay? Here we go.
Frankenstein, who's an atheist, has said, and I think it's also a quote, if there were no uniformity, science would be impossible. Exactly, Dr. Stein. If there were no uniformity, science would be impossible. So on what basis in an atheist universe is science possible? Since in an atheist universe, there's no basis for assuming that there's going to be uniformity. For some of say, well, it's been that way in all the cases in the past that we know of, and therefore very probably it's going to be that way in the future, is to assume, because you're using probability, that the future is going to be like the past. That's to say it's too vague the very question that's being asked you.
there is no problem with evil in an atheist universe because there is no evil in an atheist universe. Since there is no God, there is no absolute moral standard, and nothing is wrong. The torture of little children is not wrong. It's in an atheist universe. It may be painful, but it is not wrong. It is morally wrong in a theistic universe, and therefore there is a problem with evil of perhaps a psychological or emotional sort. But philosophically, the answer to the problem of evil is you don't have an absolute standard of good by which to measure evil in an atheist universe. You only have that in a theistic universe, and therefore the very posing of the problem presupposes my worldview rather than his own. God has a good reason for the evil that he plans or allows. Okay, so don't you wish that every conversation you had with an unbeliever would be moderated and timed? Yeah. That way you could get your points across and you actually deal with his arguments and you can deal with yours and, and all the rest. So, so no, obviously this is a, a, you know, a very formal, sterile environment, and this is a, this is a, but this is a good learning tool for us. Because, listen, and you've got these printouts. You can take these things and read them over, and as you read this over and start to digest it and start to own some of it, it will come out in your conversation. You're going to find these things to be very powerful. You just want to make sure that you're not, I mean, he's very curt and sharp in some of the things he's saying because it's a debate format. We are going to be gentle. We're going to be tender with people, patient with them, understanding that it's God who wins the heart, not us. It's not our arguments. It's God. It's God by his spirit. So we're going we're gonna to hit issues of the gospel. We're going to make sure and get that in there. Um, because that's, that's, it's not these arguments that saves the sinner, right? It's the gospel that saves the sinner. This is a defense of our worldview. This is answering the fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And that's exactly what Dr. Bonson has done. So I hope that... Um, is sufficient for tonight and encourages you and strengthens you in, in your thinking. We'll come back and finish up the last segment next week. For now, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for again for some time tonight to reflect on these uh, fundamental foundational matters. And as Dr. Bonson said in this last segment, every Sunday school child learns these things in our churches. These are the uh, let us not take the Christian worldview for granted that it is powerful because we are being guided by your light, your revelation. In your light, we see light. In your truth, we understand the world around us. We understand metaphysical questions. We understand questions of epistemology and ethics. We, we understand how to live, how to think. Uh, this is what the world around us is completely lost in. We pray, Lord, that you would give us a a uh, heart of tenderness and compassion for the world, but help us also to never shy away from uh, a conversation with them because it's through us, the means of bringing the gospel to them, it's through us that you bring, the sal bring salvation of your gospel to sinners. So please use us and please strengthen us for, uh, for the work we have ahead of us. Thank you for leaving us on earth to do this very thing, and thank you for strengthening us through these kinds of lectures and uh, this debate. Please go with us. Please bless our week. Uh, remind us again of what a great gospel we have, what a great God we have, and that we can live before you as Josh was preaching this morning in an attitude and a heart of repentance always. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.